Good morning. Great to worship God together. Thanks, Raymond, for the welcome and the Von D's for helping us understand the cross and our eternal life. And this weekend, several of our campus and singles have gone away to Rotorua. So it's normally that row, the rowdy row, that's gone there. So that's where they are. They haven't abandoned ship. They're still a part of us, but they're just away for the weekend at Rotorua. Hopefully it didn't rain too much down there while they were all in tents. So that's great. Also visiting from our sister church in London or close to London in Thames Valley is our brother Francois. So if you don't mind standing up, bro, he's Francois. Originally from South Africa, and both parents and grandparents, disciples, and I think they, you know some of the South Africans here, but now lives over there in London, and he's touring New Zealand and the world, sounds like. That's what it sounded like. Awesome. And how many of you got to see the moon this week, the blood moon? The clouds covered it, hey? I was a bit discouraged. I, mean, I, I don't know how, somebody saw it, they posted photos on on Facebook and the news, and and so I don't know what combination of factors there were, the blood moon, the lunar eclipse, the something else, the 30% bigger, the harvest moon, all, all these different moons together, and then there's flash flooding going on, and, and so my neighbor was like, hey mate, is Jesus coming back, like blood moon, <laughs> flash flooding, and I said, yeah, he's just waiting for you to get sorted, you know, blood moon, flash flooding, you live beside a preacher, I think God's trying to sort you out, bro. <laughs> He's not here this morning, is he? He said he, he, said he might come in the next couple of weeks, so i got to tone it down, you know, when it does come. Um, amen. So, in the book of Galatians, turn over there. We'll be studying out the book of Galatians. That's what we've been looking at as a church, going through chunks of it, really, to, to mine out the essential nature of the gospel. That's, that's really what the book of Galatians boils down to. Paul is in a fight for his authority and for his message. He's almost in a, in a spiritual sparring match where he's had some opponents and they say, Paul is not the person you need to listen to. And his message isn't a true gospel message. So this is the scene where he's defending his authority and he's defending the message and all throughout the gospel really comes to life. And so it's important for us to learn what, what is the gospel and how do we respond to the gospel. And along, along the way, there's questions that aren't explicit but are implied within it. And one of them is how, how do we live such a life and have the right motivation? Because to, to live out the standards of the Bible is a high expectation. And sometimes we can be motivated by others or by fear or guilt or shame. But the answer, Paul says, we need to always be motivated by grace. And so that will often appear in the book. Another question is, when, when should we take stands? When should we take strong stands in our Christian life? And Paul will answer that too on things that really matter. And so those are two of the questions that appear in the text this morning. How, how do we get motivated for the long haul and when do we take strong stands? Let's pray and read our text in Galatians chapter 2. God, we're grateful to worship you this morning, the supreme being, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. And we pray as we read your words that your spirit combined with these words helps us to open our minds to understand what you would have us here and to live it out, God. Not only for our personal lives, but for us as a church. That we can, we can grasp what you're trying to say. And then we can take it to the city and the country. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Starting in Galatians chapter 2. Oh, I do believe our kids' ministry has shifted, right? The workers that were in there are in here now. Is that correct? So if, if you are serving in the kids' ministry for the last rotation, please just pop up so we can recognize you and say thank you for helping out. Awesome. We, we appreciate your work. We have lots of kids in our church, and so thank you for your hard work and your service. Amen. Gal- uh, Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. And that may just be jumping in the middle of the things for you, but I'll explain a little bit of the context after I read. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Now the reason Titus is such a big deal is Titus is Gentile and he's not been circumcised. And the whole issue that Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk about is circumcision. And so here he's coming to Jerusalem, a Jewish church, and brings a Gentile uncircumcised believer So you talk about tension that he's potentially creating and trying to figure out what what is the nature of the gospel. In verse 2, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. In fact, I have one here with me. (laughs) And so here he's, I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Verse 4 is very, that's very, very strong language. False believers. So these are people that had some connection to the church in Jerusalem. And they have some plot to come in and enslave the church again to legalism. And Paul says these are false believers pretending to come into our ranks like double agents and try to figure out how they can twist the gospel. In verse 5, we did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Now that language may sound irreverent because he's talking about the apostles. But his opponents had elevated the apostles so much. And they said, Paul is just a second-hand apostle. But these guys really walked and talked with Jesus. And true, they did. But Paul says, in the scheme of things, God doesn't play favorites. Every man is on level playing field. And in verse 7, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, uncir- and they to the circumcised. 
But all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. Amen. That's our text for this morning. So this context, again, is every time Paul goes in and plants a church and then goes on to the next spot, he ordinarily had people come in and follow him and try to undo his preaching. That's incredibly annoying. Think about it. As a parent, every time if you corrected your kid, if another parent came in behind and said, now what your parent just said, that would tick you off. And so Paul has his own traveling criticism that follow his, follows him around. And I, I just find in that a lesson of its own. He's, he's incredibly patient, but firm, but still preaching the gospel, doesn't get worn out, but deals with it all. And here's his little band of people following him around, but he's still going for it. And they're saying, this guy's not real, his authority's not real, and they really have a beef with Paul. And, you know, there is, there, even today, people have issues with the Apostle Paul and his writings. Even back in the New Testament times, when the New Testament was canonized, people had issues with it. They said, oh, his, his teaching is different from James. His teaching is different from Peter. His teaching is different from Jesus. In fact, I don't even know if we should listen to his teaching. They shouldn't be in the New Testament. And so, if that's their point of view, perhaps they also have to consider that Peter references Paul's writings... He says, Paul has hard writings. They're hard to understand. So to discredit Paul, you have to discredit Peter. All right? You also have to discredit Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and includes Paul's missionary journeys and a lot of his teaching that he does to the churches and his sermons. And so even in that day, people were taking shots at Paul. So it's not new today if people want to take shots at Paul. But to do that, you have to discredit Peter. You have to discredit Luke. And eventually you have to discredit Jesus. So it's helpful just to, 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 to know that Paul wasn't, he wasn't well received then, he's not well received now, but he is a gospel writer. And we need to take heed to his letters. Two points this morning. Number one is recognizing grace. In verse 9, the scene here, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When they recognized the grace given to me. And I, I don't know what this looked like, but there was a little meeting. And it seems like they just stuck out their hand and said, put it there, Peter, or Paul, or Barnabas. Here's the right hand of fellowship, right? And, and so they accept them. That's a signal we embrace your message. We see you. And the reason is given, they recognized the grace given to me. That's what Paul and the phrase he uses. And so, it's, it's, they visibly saw it. That word recognize is to see, perceive, and understand with your eyes. And so there was something that when they met Paul or heard about Paul, or something visible about Paul's life and his ministry that they recognized and they identified it as grace given to Paul. But what does that phrase mean? They, they recognize the grace given to me. Well, Paul, throughout his ministry, he's very clear. In the book of Galatians, he's very clear. But throughout his entire ministry, he's very clear about what motivates him. In Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, When God, who set me apart from our mother's womb, called me by His grace. So Paul understood from the moment he started following Jesus, it was a call by grace. Not because he was a prime candidate, not because he was the top pick, but because of God's grace. The reason he went on all these missionary journeys, he was motivated by that grace. 
The reason he converted so many people, he was motivated by that grace. The reason why he strengthened people all of the time, he was motivated by that grace. Paul, he knows that a supreme divine being reached out to him. And he was moved by that because he knew who he was. He knew he was a persecutor of the church. And he knew God called me just by grace. It's not because I got circumcised or because I obeyed the law. It was all by grace. And it's significant they use the phrase, the grace that was given to me. Not the grace that Paul earned. Not the grace that he worked hard for. But they recognized grace had been given to Paul and in his life. Now that same word recognized is also used earlier in the book of Acts. When the, Jew, when the Jewish church had just started. And in Jerusalem, it was primarily Jewish. In fact, it was only Jewish at, at a certain point. But then what happens is people start spreading everywhere. And they start preaching the gospel. And people start becoming Christians in a city called Antioch. And that's where this concerns. In Acts chapter 11, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. That's a detail that's important because now they're not just talking to Jews. They're talking to Greeks also, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw, it's the exact same word that's used in Galatians chapter 2. Barnabas goes, the Jerusalem says, hey, we, we hear some news. The Gentiles are becoming Christians. And we're a bit suspicious. If, is it real? Is it not real? Hey, Barnabas, go check it out. Barnabas goes to the city and he arrives. And what does he see? He sees the grace of God. He saw what the grace of God had done and he was glad and he encouraged them all. In other words, when he gets there, he sees grace is having a visible impact. And this, in, in the bigger scheme of things, is what Paul's referring to. The same connection happened when he goes to Jerusalem meets with these guys, and they see very visibly this guy's been changed by grace, and his ministry, there's evidence of grace as well. And they've recognized that. One of the, one of the key phrases that Paul uses that, that kind of stands out also in the book of 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am... The worst. Now, the reason am is bold and in a different color is that's present tense. Why is that a big deal? Because Paul's a Christian now. But he still sees the bigger picture. He says, I am present tense, even though I'm saying I am the worst. I understand grace given to me. He got it. And that's the reason why he worked hard, converted, strengthened, wrote letters, did what he does. Grace given to him. Now this, this has application in our lives, not just Paul's life, right? It has application because first, you have to recognize your own dose of grace. You have to recognize that. You know, as a teenager, I thought, oh, I had to, I had to do this and do that right or not do that in order to be accepted. And perhaps there's a, a mentality as teens that you have to do everything to fit in and please parents and please. But it's all about God giving you grace. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's not about pleasing people. It's about God giving you grace and the fact that you need grace because yeah. we all need it. If you're married, you, you need to reflect on the grace God has given you in your spouse. 
Because you, you needed a partner. And you needed somebody to help you understand the gospel and life. And for parents, it's helpful to reflect on the grace given you by having kids. Because they refine your life as well. They shape you into the character of Christ as well. Good, bad, and ugly. That's what they do. That's grace given to you having kids. But for all of us, it's, it's that God gives us grace through Jesus. And Paul recognized that. And people recognize that in his ministry. A good re- exercise this week is to reflect on who you were. Before he became a Christian. Who were you? In addition to that, who are you now? You're still the same person. But you're saved because of God's grace. Another way it's practical is that the Bible helps us understand grace actually brings people together. What was so powerful about Barnabas' visit to the church in Antioch was he saw they knew Jews were being converted, but now Gentiles are coming. And now they have a mixed church, Jewish and Gentile. And Barnabas says, when I saw, I saw evidence of the grace of God. When I came, I saw Kiwis and Australians and South Africans all worshiping together. And that wasn't like what people were used to seeing. In fact, if you go out today almost on any continent and you go to any church on a Sunday morning, the predominant congregation is one race. That's not a visible sign of grace. It doesn't take a lot of human effort to get people together that share the same background. There's no work involved. They naturally come together. But grace is the only reason why people from different backgrounds come together and stay together and love being together. And that's what Barnabas saw when he came to the church. He said, man, this is different. Hey, let me go back and report to Jerusalem. People are working together. And, And that helps us see on a practical level, we have to become agents of grace. It doesn't make a statement to a lost world if you only connect with your type of people. Everybody does that. But when we make a connection to people from different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, different opinions, different etc. It starts to make them wonder what is the reason for that? Why do they connect with people that are so different from them? And the cool thing is we can practice that in our own fellowship. Can't we? We got quite a wide variety of here. And so I encourage you today in the fellowship. Because I know there's people that you haven't met. I know there's people you haven't connected to. I know there's people you're probably intimidated to connect to. But talk to those people. And that's a display of God's grace. When people from different backgrounds connect. And lastly, it's practical. Because when we look for grace and we recognize grace, it doesn't make us suspicious. What's interesting about Barnabas is in Acts chapter 9, everybody's kind of scratching their head about Paul. Yeah. yeah, I heard this guy got baptized, but also heard he kills Christians. I'm not going to invite him as a guest speaker to my church. But Barnabas, has a di- he's the one that actually pulls Paul in and says, no, nah, he's good. And Barnabas is also the one that comes, comes to Antioch and recognizes grace. Barnabas is also the one in Galatians that goes with Paul back to Jerusalem and they recognize the grace given to them. And so I believe Paul and I believe Barnabas, his mentality wasn't suspicious because he's looking for grace. You know, yeah, Paul has a wild background, but let me look for the grace, how God has demonstrated grace in his life. Yeah, I know this church is a bit interesting because there's Jew and Gentile, but let me look for the grace. Let me recognize the grace. And I think that's what we need to do in our fellowship as well. 
look for the grace, you know, and because we all, we all have different backgrounds and different opinions and different stances, but look for the grace and recognize the grace and how God is working. Overall, recognize it in your life and make sure it's recognizable in your life and ministry. Amen? Amen. Secondly, know when to stand. Know when to stand. Uh, the, the Christian life is often about, and life in, in general is, when, when do I take a firm stance? Or when do I not need to stand? Or when can I compromise? When can I discuss, dialogue, negotiate, all that stuff? In this, in this context, that's an issue that's at stake. Paul, should I take a stand on the gospel I preach? Or should I compromise and give in to what my opponents are saying I should preach. That's the essence of what's going on. But in chapter, in verse 9, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. Now, what Paul is experiencing in Galatia, he had already experienced in Jerusalem. So what he's doing now to the church is he's saying, okay, I know you're saying that circumcision is necessary, but I've already encountered this problem in Jerusalem. Let me tell you about it. And let me tell you the conclusion of the problem in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barb, this is actual footage, what they look like. <laughs> as well as Peter, James, and John. Those guys look like studs, don't they? Looking off into the distance. So there's Paul and Barnabas. And... In Acts chapter 11, they go to Jerusalem to actually take a poor contribution. The church in Jerusalem has become poor. Why? Because when people got converted, they gave away all their stuff to help the people that were there. They sold their houses and sold that stuff. Now, okay, we shouldn't have given, you know, now we need. And so what Paul and Barnabas do, they take up a collection and they bring the collection to the church in Jerusalem. And while they're in Jerusalem... It's been 14 years later after Paul's conversion. That's what verse 1 says. So he's in Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And he says, while I'm here, I might as well meet with Peter, James, and John. Just because there's a potential division on the horizon. People are saying, you still need to be circumcised. And I'm preaching, you don't need to be circumcised. So he has this private meeting. That's what he says. I went in to response and met privately with those esteemed as leaders. However, while the meeting was taking place, some false brothers kind of infiltrated it. That's kind of annoying when you, you know, when you pull somebody aside in the fellowship, you try to have a serious chat, and then somebody swoops in and says, how's it going, bro? You know, it's like, that's what's happening here. They're trying to have a private little discussion, and in comes the false brothers. And that's what they look like. That's actual footage of what they look like as well. And their message is clear. Because it's stated in Acts chapter 15. This is the problem that's going on. They say this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they're going around telling the church. And Paul has just come in and says circumcision is no longer necessary. It's grace and faith. They come in and say no. And so Paul and Barnabas and Titus, or Paul and Barnabas, they meet with, with Peter, James, and John. And they say, here's the deal. And, and these guys are saying, Titus, your boy who's not circumcised, you need to circumcise him. And, and this passage says, not even Titus, in verse 3, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. And this is a meeting with Paul and Barnabas, Titus, the apostles, and these false brothers. 
and they did not give in to them for a moment. So to summarize all that, Paul is basically saying, look, I've already had this issue in Jerusalem. We've already discussed this. Some false brothers, probably, probably your friends, which he's saying to the Galatians, have come into the church and they've already said this idea, you need to be circumcised. But there was a Greek disciple who wasn't even needed circumcision and the apostles approved it. In fact, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. There is no different gospel. There's one. There isn't circumcision here and not circumcision here. You cannot be saved by following the law. It's all by grace and faith. And I'm going to take a stand on it so that the gospel can be preserved for you. This is Paul's stance. And he's not budging. And circumcision was a very big deal in the New Testament. They were so zealous about it. They required converts to get circumcised. These were, these were people that were going for it, saying, unless this happens, you cannot be saved. But Paul preaches, no, that's not true. It's not legalism and law, it's grace and faith. Even when Paul is recounting his own experience, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. It's a powerful thing, right? It's, it's, it it kind of goes over our minds in the modern day, but this was a big issue in the New Testament church. And so when this meeting is going on, there's a lot of questions surrounding it. What are they talking about? You know, are they going to make Titus get circumcised? Are we going to, is there going to be addition to Paul's gospel? Or are they going to revise his message in some way? Is there, going to, is there going to be a split? Is there going to be the Gentile church and the Jewish church? What's going to happen? So a lot centered on this meeting. And then later in Acts chapter 15, it becomes a public meeting. Because the issue had, begotten, had become so large. And so at this point, it's a private, but it, it eventually becomes public. And so in other words, can we stay free in Christ, or are they going to try to chain us to the law again? And Paul says, we didn't give in to them. They extended us the right hand of fellowship. Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Gentile. Nothing about my message was changed or added to it. They gave me the right hand of the fellowship. Paul took a stand. Now, as a parent, I've taken stands that really don't matter. And I need to learn to take stands that matter. When one of my daughters was younger, I can't remember the age, but it was younger. Probably a point where she, well, she definitely couldn't reason, or I couldn't reason with her. But the goal was to get her to eat the vegetables. And I was... I was adamant she was going to eat the vegetables before she left the table. And then 30 minutes pass. And then an hour passes. Hour and a half. Up to two hours. Yeah, exactly. I was getting more... And it was doing nothing. I, yeah, exactly. I, I had to eat the vegetables myself. But I said, man, I'm going to... Obviously, she had no clue of the... No clue of the bigger picture. But I was like, I'm the dad. And you're going to eat the vegetables. And we're not leaving the table until you eat the vegetables. That's a wrong stand to take. Because it didn't do anything. It didn't make any sense. And it just left me angry and frustrated. That wasn't a hill to die on. Not at all. Not even close. Not even close. But there's a spiritual principle there that there is a hill to die on, and it's the gospel message. And quite possibly, it's the only hill to die on. Because everything else in the big picture is minor and potentially even irrelevant. But the gospel message, if you budge on that, 
you lose everything. You got to know when to take a stand. This this has a lot of application in our life because, first of all, our strongest and most passionate stance has to be on the gospel message. Just like Paul, he's in this he's in this controversy, and he says, "No." It could have been easy. He could have said, yeah, you know what? Circumcision really isn't that big a deal. It's, it's an indifferent matter. Why don't we just circumcise Titus and call it a day? And then you budge on the very nature of the gospel message. And that becomes legalism. But he does. He says, no, we don't give in to a moment. Our faith in Christ calls us to repent and get baptized and we're saved by God's grace. And here at this moment, they're trying to say, no, you need to be circumcised as well. And Paul says, we're taking a stance and we're not backing down. And it's the right stance to take. I mean, he could have won more friends by compromising. Surely he didn't have a good reputation to begin with. He could, have fav- he could have carried some favor at this point, but he says, reputation I'm not concerned about, I'm concerned with the gospel. And that was in the New Testament, they were trying to doctor the gospel. It's 2018, and there are so many different versions of the salvation message. We cannot back down for one moment. That's the very thing to stand strong on, is the very saving nature of the gospel. And it does require a lot of discernment. But when you get to know someone and you hear their salvation doctrine and it doesn't match the Bible, it's not a time to stand in judgment, but it's a time for alarm bells to go off and say, we need to, we need to, we need to study the Bible more thoroughly. I need to become friends with you and love you more thoroughly so you can understand, because I'm not going to back down. What you have been taught is erroneous. And we cannot back down on that because they're good people or because they're sentimentality. This is when to take a stand. And it needs to be gracious, and it needs to be loving, but it needs to be a stand. And you have friends, and you have family that say they're Christian, and you know people that say they're Christian, but you see their lives, and you may know their doctrine, and it's not time to judge them, but it's a time to reach out to them and take a stand, because they've been given a gospel that's not biblical. And we need to take a strong stance on that. Everything else, we need to live out the principle of peace and mutual edification. Pretty much what Paul says in Romans, right? Because if, if we take, if, if we all believe this is the gospel message and we're all saved, amen. Everything else becomes like, okay, it's matters of opinion and it's not necessarily that important, is it? If we save our strongest stance and our energy for the gospel. But often we misplace our energy in other places like me at the dinner table, putting all my energy into a stance that didn't matter. Well, I should have been thinking, well, wait till she becomes a teenager. And that's when I'm going to have to take stronger stances. But I, but I think we do that spiritually. We, we, we take these stances on matters that aren't really important. And it, and it causes division. I don't care if you eat meat or vegetables, honestly. I don't care if you're vegetarian or all you eat is meat. If you have a conviction about that, that's awesome. But don't take such a strong stance on that that you cause division with your brothers and sisters. Who cares in the big picture? If we're all disciples and we've been saved, I don't care what you eat. You know, I do care what you eat, but you get the point, right? But, but sometimes we think, man, you know, I have this strong conviction in this area. I'm going to take, I'm going to die on this hill and I'm going to let other people know about it. It's irrelevant. It's not a hill to die on. Save your energy for standing strong in the gospel. Whether we should take our kids to school or whether we should put them in homeschool. 
That's irrelevant. If you got a strong conviction about that, it's not right or wrong either way. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What matters is we stand strong in the gospel. But if you believe strong about this opinion and another person believes strong about that opinion, it's not a time to take a stand against each other and say, my opinion is right. My, who cares? <laughs> really? Strong, stand strong on the gospel message. That's the thing we need to stand strong on. Or if you feel like, oh, I know how to reach out to people and your method isn't... It, uh, at the end of the day, if what you're doing is effective, amen. Amen. Let's stand strong on the gospel. Everything else, peace and mutual edification. We can learn a lot. We all have different opinions and stances and strongs and convictions and etc. We can learn a, a, a lot from each other. Where we meet, when we meet, how we meet, what time we meet. Those are all irrelevant. We save our energy for the gospel message. And we stand strong there. It also helps us to handle conflict. Because this was a big conflict. Major. It boils over in Acts 15. It becomes like a public convention. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised? And the outcome was no. And then they go and spread that around. But look at the way Paul handles it. He goes and he does it privately. And he pulls them aside and says, Hey, here's, here's my gospel. Here's what I'm preaching. Here's Titus. Here's the situation. Let's figure this out. Because there's a potential disunification in the church. And he handles that conflict. And he does it maturely. He does it privately, and he does it spiritually. And I think that's a good model, because we're going to have conflict by, that's the human nature. And the response isn't to hide or to criticize. The, the response is, let me, let me go speak to them privately. Let me try to figure this out in a mature way. Let me try to handle this. And then if not, let me bring someone else in. But that, that's how we handle conflict. We do it spiritually, and we do it with maturity. And sometimes, they're in, in the next in the next text, it needs to be done publicly. Paul will publicly rebuke Peter in front of all of his friends. Sometimes that has to happen. But for the most part, we handle it by, by meeting with each other and sorting things out. By peace and mutual edification. In this passage, it, it really does help us understand that the motivation for Paul and for us is grace. Over and over. Grace was given to Paul, and it was visible in his ministry. This week, tomorrow, in your life, let that be your motive. The grace given to you. Reflect on who you were and who you are. And recognize the grace given to you. And lastly, know when to take stands. The strongest stance we take is on the gospel message. It's not an alterable or revisable message. It's one that Jesus stood strong on, that Paul stood strong on, and that we must stand strong on as well. Let the grace of God be recognizable in our lives. Amen. Amen.